Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Hello everybody and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Alex Mozinski. And for the first time in a while, I'm joined by co-host Adrian Bori. Adrian, how are you today? I'm doing great. Alex, how are you? I'm wonderful. And after quite a few technical difficulties, apologies, Ben, um, we are here with Benedict Chang. He's a PhD student in the neuroscience program. Second year, I believe? Yep, second All year. Right. I should have known that. I should have asked first, but oh well. He's supervised by, did I say master's? I said You said PhD. PhD. Okay, you good. got it right. <laughs> All right thrown off my game a little bit for a second there, but um, supervised by Jody Cullum. Um, so how do you find the PhD program here at Western? Just just right off the bat, you like it here? Yeah, um, I yeah, absolutely love it here. It's pretty great. All the people are amazing. I really like the atmosphere here. Um, and I guess I was one of the first years where um, the program just got revamped. So uh, I guess I was kind of the pilot and so far it's working out great. So no complaints. Sweet. Um, so the the focus of, of your research, Ben, if we can just jump right in here, yeah, sounds good. is you, you're using brain imaging right. in, in complex motor activities, basically. So like object interception. Um, so I guess, what does that mean? All right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a lot to unpack. Um, but essentially, I'm just asking the question, how does our brain tell our body to catch a ball or something that's moving. So if you can imagine interception and we can break it down into its components, you have to recognize with your eyes that something is moving. And then um, your, I guess your visual system has to say it's moving in a direction um, which I can catch it. And then you have to make the decision to catch that object. And to make that decision to catch the object, you have to uh, do a couple of um, additional processes. So you have to um, figure out which uh, which way the object is moving, how it's moving, how fast uh, how fast it's moving. Is it accelerating? Is it decelerating? Um, and then you have to kind of extrapolate the trajectory of where the object is going to be in a future location, in a future time. Um, and then you have to make an estimation or a motor of um, where you want to catch that object and you have to make and finally you have to make a motor movement or a hand movement um, to intercept that object and that all this is active and this is all online and we have to make these calculations within you know maybe hundreds of milliseconds you can imagine a baseball player only has so much time to swing a bat right um, and to compound on the complexity of this um, we, your brain also takes time to process information. So, um, I mean, uh, it's going to take a, a couple hundred milliseconds for you to recognize something's moving and then um, make the decision to catch it. So we're actually experiencing our world a couple hundred milliseconds in the past, and your brain knows this. So, um, yeah, I'm just asking the question, how, how do we do this complex task that, you know, toddlers can do? Um, so yeah, that's pretty much the general overview of my research. So basically, we should all have a, a totally, after hearing that, newfound respect every time we watch the Blue Jays play. <laughs> yeah. Well. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm an Orioles fan, so oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, come on. <laughs> so Ben, what did? Why did you decide to investigate this particular topic? Um, yeah. So. I guess I'll start off with uh, what um, the Column Lab actually does. So um, a lot of our work um, 
in, uh, work, it's related to reaching and grasping. So how does our brain um, calculate, you know, reaching and grasping to objects? Now, I would say the large majority of the research out there right now is reaching and grasping to static objects. Um, so um, how do we form our grip aperture? How do we pick up a pen or a cup of coffee from a table? Um, and you can imagine e even that task is interesting. You have to form, like, calculate how wide the object is. You have to, um, you know, grip it and brain areas are going to be involved in that, so we're re re researching that. However, um, in terms of dynamic objects, there's not that much literature, or there is literature that breaks um, dynamic interception up into bits, and people research those individual areas, but um, in terms of brain imaging, or fMRI, which is the technique that I use, um, there's little or almost little or no research done of um, Dynamic interception. So, um, yeah, like how do we um, how do we catch a ball? That question isn't actually actively asked in um, the brain imaging field. Um, yeah. Is there a reason that it's it's not asked? Are there are there any major difficulties that you guys have to overcome? Maybe then that that other areas don't have to. Right. So you can imagine that. Um, well, essentially the fMRI or the MRI machine is a giant magnet. Um, so the one that we use is a you know three Tesla and um, you know, just to put that in comparison, the car, uh, you know, like the magnet at junkyards are 0.5 Tesla. So ours is like six times more powerful than that, which is kind of cool. Um, you can't have any ferrous metal within the um, magnet itself. Um, there are, you know, YouTube videos online where people are um, pushing chairs into the magnet and just see like a chair fly across the room. So you can imagine um, you can't really, um, you ha your whole apparatus has to be completely metal-free, or uh, specifically has to be fer ferrous, uh, free of ferrous metals, um, or else, you know, your things will start flying around, and that's bad for everyone in the room. Uh, so that's one, <laughs> that's, that's one uh, obstacle that we, uh, that we face. Uh, a second obstacle is that um, the MRI scanner is really sensitive to motion. So you can't, um, a participant doing a task can't move more than a couple millimeters, uh, or else a couple millimeters while they're being scanned, or else you know the data is moot. It's it's just not like it's not going to be usable, or it's going to be very poor quality data. So we have to design a task where the um, the participant doesn't move very much, and or where their head doesn't move very much, and um, that might not be a that might not seem like a problem, but you can imagine as soon as you move your arm, there's going to be you know um, like it, there's going to be inertia in your body that, like, is going to tweak your head in a certain direction, and that's not good for the data either. So, um, between not being able to have ferrous metals and not being able to move, those are two main restrictions. Um, but yeah, we we're trying to find our way to work around that. Um, yeah. All right. So I apologize. Actually, I, I did cut you off because you yep. were getting into kind of why you're into this research. Right. I just wanted to to ask kind of while it was on topic, um, why we why I guess other people hadn't looked into it. So right. getting back to, so why are you doing this research? So what got right. you into it? Um, so yeah, uh, my interest in this field of research comes from my personal hobby, and that personal hobby is juggling. <laughs> so uh, yeah, like uh, I've been juggling for, I don't know, uh, at least 15 years, I can say, um, and then maybe seven or eight years quite seriously. And um, in my master's, I looked, um, I looked at approaching academia as uh, I'll, I'm, I'm going to get the tools that I need to, 
succeed in academia with my master's. So I got, I did a project with fMRI and eye tracking. Um, but then in my PhD, I wanted to do something that I was really passionate about to, you know, keep my motivation to, you know, come to work every day and do projects and <laughs> do experiments and stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, as soon as I was accepted in Jody's lab, um, it's been it was quite exciting because I could say, hey, I study juggling for my PhD. And when people hear that, they're actually, their interest is kind of peaked as well. So um, I guess that outreach component is there as well. So, yeah. That's really cool. So I guess while we're on the topic of, of you and juggling, how'd you get into that? It's a unique hobby to have. Yeah. So um, I think I started when I was in grade eight. I was at a summer camp and uh, one of the instructors taught us how to make juggling balls and he said this is how to juggle and I picked up three ball juggling which is um, surprisingly easy if you know the right instructions. Um, <laughs> I've tried and it's not that easy. <laughs> <laughs> I could probably teach you in 45 minutes. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, so I just learned how to juggle three balls pretty proficiently. Um, and then I kind of put the juggling balls down for a bit. And in second year university is a bit of a funny story. Um, I was studying for a neuroanatomy exam and I lost interest in studying so and I walked by the gym and found the juggling club and I'm like hey I think I remember how to juggle maybe I'll go join the juggling club and from then on it well I learned how to juggle more stuff and more objects and different objects like clubs torches knives then I got into unicycling but yeah that's another <laughs> that's another story so yeah all right, we'll hold it there for now I guess but um all right so getting back into sort of why your lab is looking at research topics like this, you know, object interception and things like that. Um, sort of how come they're looking at this, other than the fact that it hasn't been looked at? Sort of in what way um, are we going to benefit from this kind of research? Right. So you can imagine that um, reaching, grasping to static objects is, you know, somewhat useful. If we know how our brain calculates how to reach for these objects um, when someone is in a condition where they can't reach for something or um, they're unable to due to a neurological condition. We have kind of a baseline as to how um, how that um, mechanism may happen. Um, well, you can also imagine that our world's inherently dynamic. So you know, um, like you're, there's going to be animals running around, and if something's running toward you, you want to know that it's running toward you, so you can you know either fight it or runaway. Um, or you know, there's cars moving around the street. So um, to study how our brain processes moving objects is pretty important. So um, not only, you know, that, you know, like all the sports, I, almost all the sports, I think, or if not all sports deal with these dynamic objects, um, just asking the question of how um, how do the brain process processes um, motion um, is pretty important just as a basic science question. And of course, there's... Uh, applications to things like prosthetics or how, how can we integrate prosthetics with the brain to you know effectively catch or grasp uh, objects more um, more efficiently or you know how can we improve upon stuff like prosthetics or um, another application would be robotics I can understand like building robots so um, how can we get robots to start intercepting um, objects to make them more efficient I don't know if we actually want to do that but <laughs> it's <laughs> the possibility is there <laughs> That's really cool. So are there people who have a, a severely reduced ability to um, intercept objects or, or 
uh, anything like that? Yeah, so um, I guess there's a few things that can happen to hinder your ability to, you know, um, navigate around and um, intercept uh, or grasp objects, I guess. Uh, first of all, the, the deficit could be on the sensory side. So um, you could have a stroke that knocks out, um, you know, areas of the brain that are responsible for motion processing. So you can't process motion as effectively, therefore you can't, you know, calculate that trajectory to, um, to uh, intercept that object. Or the deficit could be on the motor side of things where um, you, your visual processes could be working fine, but you're just unable to move, um, to move effectively to intercept something. So, you know, there's lots of conditions out there. Um, um, like stroke, um, Parkinson's disease, you know, um, or any other motor deficit. Hunting, Huntington's comes to mind as well, so, yeah. So this, this research could then play into a lot of really big things and it could be incredibly useful. That's awesome. Um, so once you've gotten around the problem of, of not having any, any ferrous metals, right. how, how do you go about doing this? Like, what? how do you look at your research question? What are you doing? Right, so... Um, I guess I should probably uh, also mention that another limitation of MRI is that you want to eliminate confounds of, um, or basic confounds. Um, so like, if the visual stimulus is different between conditions, your visual cortex is going to process the two conditions differently, and you can't separate that from your desired effect. So um, we have to make a task where the motor movement is the same, and the visu visually the task has to be quite similar. So um, we. We custom built this touchscreen, which is completely free of ferrous metals. Um, we should f figure out a name for that, but I just thought of that, sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, we have this touchscreen that um, participants can see, and we kind of have our, car um, our uh, what's the word? Uh, we, have a, we use a head tilt setup. So the, uh, if you can imagine laying down um, in an MRI and your head is tilted, you can see your working space, which is um, quite unique to um, our lab as well as several other labs around the world. Um, so you can see your working space and you see this um, touchscreen. And the, the way we built this touchscreen is that the back of the touchscreen, it's a projector screen. So we can uh, front project an image onto this screen and we know exactly where that image is on the screen. So wherever they touch, um, we know exactly uh, that location of that touch. So we have a task where they're looking at dots moving around um, the screen and we prompt them to intercept one of those dots. Or we say, don't intercept the dot, but try to match the timing of the dot um, and just touch the, the screen at a certain point um, so the timing is the same. So we can start to tease apart these different aspects of interception. And that's our main goal. So um, try to, trying to you know, break down interception and uh, tease apart what brain areas are doing what when you're catching a ball. And how realistic is this uh, touchscreen in simulation? Um, if it's just a screen, is it really like having a, a, an object that is, is permanent in space? Or? Right, so that's one of the things we have to really keep in mind is the limitations of our, um, I guess, what we can make as conclusions. Um, mm -hmm. So, of course, it's not that realistic and uh, as compared to catching you know a 3d ball this is still a 2d screen um but that's one of the um one of the things about basic science you kind of have to break it down to some level and you have to accept that you're going to have limitations um and you're you're going to have trade-offs for limitations and controls so um and yeah unfortunately it's not as realistic as you know catching a ball in real life but um 
at this point, you know, it's a good starting, it's a good starting point. We can still tease apart, you know, um, how the brain processes motion and, um, yeah. So, so you've got your MRI machine, you've got this touchscreen that I'm going to call the ultimate Ben pad. And Ben pad, I like ben that. Go. <laughs> I was going to go with um, Ferris Metals Day Off. Ooh, that's that's what the task should be called. First metal day off equals an MRI plus ultimate Ben pad. Watch for the publication. (laughs) (laughs) So so you get that in there and you get your participants in. Do you see a difference from one person to another in how well they perform? And does that correlate with anything such as, I don't know, if if they play a lot of video games? Um, would they be maybe better at, at predicting what's going to happen on the screen or maybe other things they do in real life, such as juggle? Right. <laughs> so that's kind of the ultimate goal. Unfortunately, I haven't analyzed the data yet. Um, but, I mean, you know, going off of other studies where, you know, vi- uh, video game players have, um, I might be completely wrong about this, but, you know, video game players have, can have a heightened um, peripheral vision and heightened processing of the visual field in their periphery, as well as, I guess, a lot of football players. So I'm guessing video game players will have an advantage they're you know you know used to shooting things so you know just tapping things is not going to be that far off um and uh in terms of expert groups like jugglers or you know um other sports players uh we have um uh, yeah i'm looking into that slowly so with this task i do want to just establish a baseline of how do we how does our brain process this in general and then a future direction i could compare you know expert groups with um uh, controls um, and just say like if we have these um, brain areas in mind uh, are these brain areas more active or less active in expert groups compared to controls so that's also an open question that we hopefully will be able to answer um, in the future <laughs> so in terms of these expert groups um, I'm just wondering is it possible for for anybody to become one like if I let's say I, I, I turn 40 and I decide to, to pick up uh, juggling or something do you think I'd be able to become a good a good juggler an expert or or have I kind of missed a window of opportunity to learn the to develop the motor system necessary which you guys are going to tease apart right um, so unfortunately I don't have any scientific data to back this up but wow. anecdotally I think anyone can it, it's just the time you put towards it so um, a lot of my friends who are some of the best jugglers in the world started in their 30s which is you know like long after the cut off or learning a language fluently or, you know, some other, um, other tasks, but, uh, and yeah, like they can juggle, juggle seven balls and they started when they were 30 and that's juggling seven balls is quite a feat. Like Mm -hmm. I, I can't juggle seven yet. I'm working on it, but I can't do it quite yet. Um, so yeah, it's just the time you put towards it. Um, and yeah, as long as your, you know, motor systems intact and your visual systems intact and thinking you can, um, you could pick up juggling to at least to some degree. Um, so yeah, it's you still have hope. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Alex. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, and I guess to, to extend on that then a little bit more, um, we were talking about earlier how um, this this may impact our understanding of, of I guess motor processing right. and how how we can then apply that to other disorders. Do you think then it might be possible from the information we gain here that we we may be able to use that to come up with more effective therapies then and and even uh, individual exercises a person can practice right. to, to improve their own ability? Right. Um, 
So I think that's like the ultimate goal, right? Is trying to relate this back to clinical neuroscience. Um, so you can imagine uh, creating better prostheses or better, better neuro interfaces. Um, unfortunately, I have to say, uh, like that's just going to be a way, like a long ways off. We're still doing, we're still at the basic science stage, and that goes along with a lot of basic science or a lot of sensory motor neuroscience. Um, it's still, in terms of clinical applications, it's you know going to be a couple decades removed from. From you know tangible you know results in terms of better neuroprosthetics, but um, I mean it's also a necessary step if we do want to make that um, neuroprosthetic that much better, and we want to make it you know tailored to how the brain uh, or we want to mimic how the brain processes that information. We have to figure out how the brain processes that information, um, so we can tailor that um, neuroprosthetic to um, do what we want it to. So yeah. that's amazing. Um, just, just for for anyone who's listening to understand, when you say neural prosthetic, what what do you mean? Right. So, uh, so a lot of um, there's different types of prostheses. Um, just a general overview. Uh, so you have you know um, aesthetic prostheses which aren't functional, but you know they mimic the weight of your um, let's say you lost an arm and mim- mimics the weight, so your body's still in balance. And then there's um, some functional prostheses where you can. Uh, you have a hook, or you're able to manipulate objects um, with some degree of, with a couple degrees of freedom. Um, and then a neural prosthetic is one where um, you actually interface the prosthetic with the brain itself. So any signal that um, the, prosthetic, the prosthetic receives to move is coming directly from your brain. And then there's a couple other ones in between, like ones that use um, um, electrical signals from surrounding muscles, et cetera. So, yeah. Welcome to the future, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so we are coming up on, on the end soon. Well, well, we still have you here. <clears throat> I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about I guess, the juggling community. Uh, what what could one what could one do if let's say they're they're new to London and they want to get into it and they want to maybe juggle with you. Right. What would they where would they have to go and and are there any call-outs to the juggling community that yeah. you would like to make. Yeah, that's great. Alex wants to become a juggler, <laughs> and he's just looking. He's, where is this community? <laughs> so there is actually a club at Western, and um, it's absolutely great. Um, the people are great. We're very inviting. Uh, we love teaching people how to juggle. It's like one of the most rewarding experiences a juggler can experience. It's like just seeing someone improve really quickly. Um, so yeah, there is a club on campus. Uh, there's a Facebook group. I believe it's just called Western Juggling Club. Um, we usually meet once a week on Sunday evenings. Um, and yeah, it's just like for during clubs week, we have a booth. Um, we're pretty easy to spot because there's someone always juggling there or doing some sort of crazy trick. Uh, unfortunately, we haven't been able to get approval to bring fire indoors, but um, we're working on it. <laughs> maybe, maybe one day. Uh, but yeah, so... Um, there is a pretty active juggling club in uh, London, which is great because it gives me data points. <laughs> I mean, friends. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's a good group of people. You're, like, it's, again, really welcoming. So, um, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's about all the time we have. But thank you, Ben, so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having uh, me. And I guess see you all next time. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye for now. 
That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.